I'll invite us to turn to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, as uh, Didi mentioned earlier, there are some that are underneath the seatbacks in front of you. It's also printed in the back of your bulletin. I believe it's found on page 519 in those pew Bibles. Psalm 131. We're going through uh, in these uh, weeks of August um, a series that I've called Sabbatical Psalms. It's looking at it's some of the, the psalms and the prayers that God has given to us as his people and that God uh, particularly gave to me during uh, my recent sabbatical um, uh, just to minister to my own heart and to draw me into his rest. And so I share these with you. Uh, he shares these with us uh, as his people. So Psalm 131, let's give our attention uh, to the reading and the hearing of God's word. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Father, would you teach us what David learned in his lifetime, what Jesus, your son, demonstrated in his time here on earth. Would you calm and quiet our busy, noisy souls as we hope in you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a a hearing problem. Literally, I have a hearing problem. And I discovered it one time driving in the car with my sons in the back. and, And all of a sudden in the back seat from our Suburban, uh, one of them would call out, Hey, Dad, your blinker is on. And I would say, how did you know that? And they would say, can't you hear the clicking sound? And with the music playing, the AC blowing, and the road noise happening, I would look down, and there would be the light blinking on and off. And I couldn't hear a thing. And so we'd get home, and remember the first time it happened, I kind of got home, and they got out of the car, and I turned the car off, and... Once everything was off and quiet, I kind of turned the key back on and hit the, the, uh, the turn signal. And I looked down and I could hear it loud and clear. Click, 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 click. Suddenly it dawned on me that I had become like all those people driving down the road that I laughed at with their blinkers on. And now I understood why that was. In noisy places with different voices and sounds going on in the background, I have a really hard time hearing certain things. Maybe some of you are like that as well. But put me in a deer stand before sunrise when everything is still, when the woods are calm and and everything is, is utterly quiet... And suddenly a leaf coming down through the branches of a tree or a a squirrel hopping across the the forest floor 50 yards away or a wood duck flying high over the treetops whistling through the air or sometimes even a, a, a millipede 
and its hundred legs crawling on the bark behind my head become loud and clear and draw attention. In the dead calm and quiet stillness, even the slightest sound breaks through. Psalm 131 is about a soul, a life that is still, that is calm, that is quieted like those silent woods before sunrise. It's about a person that is composed, that is at peace, that is contented, that is highly sensitive to the, to the noise around or within. It is about learning to become peaceful in the midst of the chaotic, clamoring background noise of our own desires, of the distractions of the world that keep us often in an inner state of restlessness, often drowning out that still small voice of the one who, who promises to keep us in perfect peace and to give rest to our restless souls. Now, I'm not sure how I missed the deep wisdom and the comforting counsel of this psalm for so many years of my life. Maybe because it's just so short. <laughs> Maybe because it's hidden among some of the more well-known and familiar psalms of ascent, those psalms that were, were sung by God's people as they were going up to Jerusalem to worship. More likely, it's because my own life was often too noisy to hear this simple testimony of a restful soul. Two years ago, a wise counselor and friend directed me to this psalm, along with an excellent article by another counselor, a guy named David Pallison, who's passed away on this psalm, which I'll draw from some of my thoughts in this message. But during my recent sabbatical, God used this psalm and he used Pallison's article to help me understand better the source of much of the noise inside my own heart and in my own soul. To teach me the way of a calmed and quieted soul. And that's God's desire for all of us. That's why he's put this psalm in his word. Psalm 131 is God's gift to us through the testimony of David and the teaching of his Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon said, This is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest psalms to learn. It's an easy one to memorize, but it is a hard one to internalize and to apply. And that's a good reason for us to apply ourselves to doing both. <laughs> To doing both. And so I want to take a minute right now and I want us to read this again together. And I want us to read it out loud together. I want us to read it slowly. And as we speak these words, let the truth that they convey seep down like balm in your soul. That you might be calmed and quieted as we put our hope in the Lord. So, so read with me as I lead us in Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. 
Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The fact that this is another psalm of David tells us a few things. First, it tells us that a calm and quiet soul does not necessarily equate to a calm and quiet life. David lived anything but the sort. He was a blue-collar shepherd, and he was also the greatest king of Israel. He fought real lions and giants and armies. He was a man after God's own heart, and he was a notorious sinner. He lived in luxurious peace in a great palace, and he lived on the run for his life in caves in the wilderness. He knew what it was like to have great success and also to fail miserably in disgrace. He experienced the loyalty and the love as well as the betrayal and the hatred of family and friends. He knew the pain of a failed marriage, of losing a baby, of rebellious children, of personal and professional success and failure. He experienced great triumphs as well as great trials, and he experienced the range of emotions that go with all of those. His life was anything but calm and quiet. And even if you read some of his other psalms, he admits that at times his soul was troubled. But David knew God, and God knew David. And in that relationship, he learned the key to calmness amidst chaos, the key to quietness amidst the noise of life, to a peace that pervades not just internally one's soul, but really pervades all of one's being. It's not achieved through emptying our minds in meditation. It's not an indifferent kind of, oh, whatever attitude towards life. It's not a Pollyannic, laid-back you know, kind of don't worry, be happy, everything's going to be okay approach. It's not retreating or retiring from life's troubles by, by accumulating wealth or, or pursuing pleasure or drowning or dosing our pain. And it's not a trait that some are just born with and others don't have. It is something learned. It is something pursued it is a a a spiritual discipline yes by God's grace for sure but comes in living and listening and learning in relationship to him and in relationship to one another as pilgrims of faith and Psalm 131 invites us to do just that to learn contentment to have peace to be at rest in all of life's circumstances. And so as we look at this, it kind of breaks down nicely into into three different parts in each of the three verses. Verse 1, David tells us something that he is not. Verse 2, he tells us something that he is. And verse 3, he gives us the reason for both. David starts by confessing to the Lord a series of things that he is not. And by pointing to what he is not, he is in effect helping us to see what a restless person really is. 
In other words, he's recognizing, he's recognizing and acknowledging, perhaps from his own past experience, the problems or the causes of a restless, agitated, noisy soul. What is it that causes us to be stressed? What is it that causes us to be anxious or to be agitated or to be fearful or to be worried or to be preoccupied? Well, we can see the answer to some degree if we just take that little word not out of that first verse. My heart is lifted up. My eyes are raised too high. I do occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David gives us three kind of word pictures here. A proud heart, eyes that are lifted up or we might say haughty, and a preoccupied mind. And all of these find their, find their root in the issue of pride. A proud person thinks too much of himself and too little of others. He, he has too high an opinion of himself. And he also has too high an opinion of what others think of him or her. The Bible sometimes speaks of a heart that is lifted up or that is strengthened by the Lord. But that's not what David is, is speaking of here. When he says, my heart is not lifted up, he means my heart is not proud. A heart that is lifted up is a heart that is, is seeking to exalt itself above its, its reality, its station. It's trying to do something that we are not or weren't made to be, and that is to be Lord of our lives. To be the, the, the master of our souls, the captains of our fate. A heart that is lifted up is a heart that wants to be the God of its own kingdom. <laughs> And it makes us unsettled. It makes us restless. It makes us stormy inside. And, and it's really hard to recognize because it seems so natural. It is so natural. <laughs> it comes so easy that we, we might not even see it. I mean, think about it. Do you see yourself as independent? Do you think of yourself as in control? Do you look at yourself as one that has to some degree things in order? Now, we would never say it like that, but it comes across in our thoughts, in our words, in our lives. Or as David Pallison says, he says, as we constantly telemarket our pride both to ourselves and to others. I mean, after all, what's wrong with wanting a little respect, a little appreciation? Is it too much to ask that I have a decent job or a, a nice home or a new car or be financially dependent or have a loving spouse, have obedient children? Is that too much? I'm a pretty good person. I try to do what's right. I know God is sovereign, but, but after all, I need to take care of the things he's given me to take care of and I need to, to be in control. I don't ask or want much, but I want a measure of comfort. I want a measure of convenience. I want a measure of control. Well, actually, I want a large measure of those things. It sounds so normal. It sounds so natural. But, but pride is it's incessant. It's, a, it's kind of like a, a, a constant white noise of the world 
and of our own hearts such that at times we not only don't recognize it, we buy into it. Tim Keller in a little book he has called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which I would recommend to anyone here if you haven't read it. We're going to get some copies of it. We'll have it or you can find it online. He defines pride as the condition of being swollen beyond our proper size. The condition of being swollen beyond our proper size. A heart that is lifted up thinks it's bigger, thinks it's more important, thinks it's better than it really is. I heard another pastor say it's kind of like a bag of potato chips. <laughs> you know, it looks full and, and firm, all, all puffed up, and then you open it up and what happens? It's half empty inside. Never satisfied, always striving to prove itself, always seeking to show its value, always wanting to extol its worth, always trying to make something of itself. Does that describe you? I know at times it describes me. Can you see anywhere in your life where your heart is lifted up? But pride is not just me-centered. It also focuses on others. And so eyes that are raised too high or eyes that are, are haughty, eyes that tend to look down on others in arrogance or to look up to others in envy and jealousy, Eyes always looking around and comparing oneself with the things around us. Again, there is a proper lifting of the eyes to the Lord. We see that in Psalm 121, Psalm 123. But along with a proud heart, David's talking here about proud eyes. When our eyes are raised too high, we're quick to see and point out the sin of others while they're looking without while overlooking our own sin. Think about the Pharisee who, who came in the temple and prayed to God, Oh Lord, thank you that I am not like these other men. Especially that guy over there, the tax collector. As well, they're quick to, to downplay or diminish the success and the gifts and the, and the blessings of others to avoid feeling inferior like Jesus' disciples, as we read earlier, we want to know who's going to be the greatest. Where are we going to fit in the lineup here? We want to be, at the be in the best seats at the table. We want to be in the room where it happens. And if we're not, we become envious. We become jealous. We become angry. We become maybe depressed. Life becomes like a ladder and we're always, we're always looking up at those above with, with envy and we're always looking down at those below in some sense with judgment. Even low self-esteem or self-loathing or even a, 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 a false humility can be a form of pride. It's still rooted in our comparing ourselves with those around us, isn't it? And understandably, this causes noise in our souls. We're easily offended. We're envious. We're disgruntled. We're competitive. We're fearful. We're depressed. We're angry. We're people-pleasing. We're judgmental. And we could just go on and on. 
eyes raised too high can ruin relationships because we're always competing. We're always measuring ourselves by those around us. Always having to, to tell our story, to make our point, to get in the last word. Proud hearts and, and raised eyes usually cause us to occupy ourselves with what David calls things too great and wonderful for us. David is not saying we should not pursue knowledge of or understanding of the deep things of God. He's not saying that we shouldn't undertake hard endeavors or pursue success or have holy ambitions. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking about being constantly focused on things that are beyond us, that are out of our control. Impossibilities or uncertainties that, that we ultimately don't really have any ability to change. And if you think about it, that's almost everything in our life. <laughs> Yet we occupy ourselves constantly with trying to, to control, trying to manage, trying to, to understand, trying to grasp these things. Other people's actions and attitudes, trying to control our own health, our finances, our success, trying to manipulate how we look, how we feel. And these are things that we actually may have some say in, some, some impact in. But start scrolling through the news or your, or your social media feed and all of a sudden the noise gets turned up even louder. Political ideologies, global crises, social upheaval, cultural wars all demand and all too easily command our attention and our concern. And we think, if you're like me, I've got to do something about this. I've got to figure this out. And it doesn't, again, mean that we don't be involved, we don't pursue and take action. But are those things occupying us? Are they what is constantly hear, heard in our soul and in our mind? And not to mention all the probing questions we want to throw at God. <laughs> you know, Lord, why are you like that? Why did you make me like this? Why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? Think about Job, who had in many ways, he had a legitimate beef with God. And throughout the whole book of Job, he's hearing what other people are saying, and he starts asking the questions himself, the hard questions, and he's challenging God, challenging his wisdom, challenging his, his guidance. And God says at the end of the book, he says, okay, Job, I'll play that game with you. Let me ask you a few questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I put the stars in the heavens and told them to shine forth? Have you ever walked in the clouds, the storehouses of the snow, or, or down into the depths of the sea? Can you give a horse his might? Can you draw out the sea monster with a little fish hook? And he goes on and on for three chapters. And Job, at the end, finally realizes... I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. 
And again, this doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue knowledge or concern ourselves with politics or culture or seek to steward the, the gifts God has given us wisely. But David's saying, I know my limits. I am a limited creature. And there is so much, so much that is too great and wonderful for me and for you and for us. Much that is not ultimately in our hands, but are in his. I love this prayer that I ran across from one of the church fathers, a man named Anselm. He says, I do not seek, Lord, to penetrate thy depths. I by no means think my intellect equal to them. But I long to understand, in some degree, thy truth which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe that I might understand. Think about that. I don't seek to understand. I don't question God. I don't put him on the stand in order that he might satisfy my intellect and make me believe in him. I believe in what I know about God and what he has revealed to me in his word in order that I might understand. There's a difference. A heart lifted up, eyes raised too high, a preoccupation with things beyond us. David says, O Lord, these no longer define me. They are not who I am. I have learned to humble myself under your mighty hand. I do not exalt myself. I do not look upon others with haughty eyes, but I wait and rest patiently upon you. Which is what we see in verse 2. What David is, he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Again, notice the actor here. This is something David has done and is doing. There is definitive action. There is a process. There is a decided movement from a state of, of chaos and, and uh, to calm. From a state of being stormy to a state of being quiet and still. And it's described by David as like being, being like a weaned child. Again, as Pallison says, he says, to gain composure is to go through a weaning process. Something that once meant everything to us now becomes nothing. It is a dying to your restless, fretful, irritable, noisy, proud ways. And friends, it does not come easy. It does not come easy. Jesus did not coddle the storm on the lake he commanded it peace be still and the wind and the waves ceased David is not those things in verse 1 because he has taken action against them in verse 2 he said be still my soul be still And the result is that he has become like a weaned child. Peaceful, contented, resting now in the arms of one he knows 
loves him, knows, there, knows is there for him, knows will protect and provide for him. Now, I know a lot of you with little children are saying, that doesn't describe my weaned child. <laughs> That's not how they act. Well, not always. Neither do we. But think about that time when they're exhausted. They've been fed. They crawl up into your lap and they put their head down. And they just rest. They just, you're just there. That's the picture David wants to have with us. We know what it's like with a nursing child with its mother. When a hungry child gets near his mother's breast, he is anything but calm and quiet. He is rooting around. He is squirming to get what he wants. And if he doesn't get it quickly, you can bet that he will become frustrated. He will become angry. He needs what is there. It means for him life. It means for him satisfaction. It means for him joy. And if mom holds back or, or delays, then he's going to let her know. He gets noisy and nasty. And right there, you get the kid version of all the emotions and behaviors that we adults feel and do when we don't get our way. When we're restless. But mother knows best, and she knows that eventually this little one will need to be weaned. And so slowly, she withholds the milk. Gently, she introduces new solid foods. And slowly, the child realizes, hey, wait a minute. This woman is more than just my personal vending machine. <laughs> she actually cares for me. And suddenly, when he's fully weaned, that, mom, that child finds mom's lap a place of rest, a place of serenity, a place of calm. Mother has not changed at all. <laughs> the child has. He is now comforted. He is now content, not because of what she can give him, but simply because she is there with him. Over sabbatical, we were with our two grandchildren um, for a while, and, and we were at the beach, and and all the others, my son and his wife and, and our, our granddaughter and my wife had all gone on a bike ride. And I stayed back with our, our little one-year-old grandson who was sick at the time. He wasn't feeling very well. And we sat on the porch in a rocker just, just sitting there. And, and he was fussy. He, he, he didn't, you, know, you could tell he was exhausted. He had, he had been fed, but he, he still was, was restless. And he'd give a little cry, and I would just pat his back, and I began to sing. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. Along with some other hymns, and eventually, he just fell asleep, and he slept for an hour and a half. Now, if you've ever sat in a rocker for an hour and a half and tried to be still with a little one on your lap, it's not that easy. But it was... A calm and quieted soul. And I thought sitting there during that time, is that not how you are, Warren, with God? 
Is that not how your soul should be within you? When Jesus' disciples came to him with lifted hearts and raised eyes and preoccupied minds, wanting to know who would be the greatest in heaven, what did he do? He put a little child on his lap. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn, that's a significant thing there, unless you turn and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this, this little child, he is the greatest in the kingdom. To become like a little child means we have to turn. We have to turn away. We have to repent of our fretful, noisy, clamoring, ladder-climbing, self-seeking, prideful, controlling selves and entrust ourselves to the care of our Heavenly Father, our Good Shepherd, who leaves the 99 to seek the one who has wandered away. And to do that means we have to take action against that temptation to sin, as Jesus said. If your heart is lifted up, humble it. (laughs) If your eyes are raised too high, bring them back down to earth. If you're preoccupied with something, get it out of the way. (laughs) Don't spend time on it. And that's where David leads us in in verse 3. How do we do that? He stops talking to the Lord and he turns and he speaks to the Lord's people. He says, O Israel, people of God, church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we, we... We look back now on this, and and we have a fuller sight. We put our hope in Jesus, the Lord. He is our hope. In Him, impossibilities become possible. In Him, uncertainties yield to what is certain. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things we do not see. We are His chosen ones. We are His beloved. We are His, His children, sons and daughters. We are His household. And we as his followers are constantly listening and learning from him who is the way of peace, who is the the place of rest, who is the blessing of contentment. And we find our hope not in, in who we are or what we can do or how much we can control or how we measure up to others, but in the one who created us. The one who controls and can do all things. The one who has measured up already for us. The one who has redeemed us, has adopted us as his own, and who says to you, I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll take care of your every need. And it's there that we find ourselves, amidst the clamor and the chaos, calm, quiet, contented, like a wean child. And why can we have that hope? Well, this psalm goes with the one before it, which we read earlier as our words of assurance, Psalm 130. It's a celebration of God's forgiveness, of his salvation. It speaks of a soul that waits patiently 
for the Lord. And it ends with this very same injunction. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God has redeemed you in Christ from all your sins. His steadfast love is new every morning that you wake up. His sovereign control is always working for your good. He who was and who is God humbled himself before the Lord. Jesus came, and what did he do? He took on the nature of a servant. His heart was not lifted up, even though it was the purest heart. His eyes were not raised too high, even though they saw everything in perfect light. He did not occupy himself with things too great and marvelous, even though there is nothing that is too great and marvelous for him. He emptied himself. He entered into the noise, the chaos, the conflict, the suffering, enduring it with a calmed and quieted soul, hoping in his Father, and he did it for you and me. And so now we have a more steadfast and sure hope that has been revealed to us in Christ, in which we wait eagerly and expectantly to be fully realized when he comes again. So where in, is your life noisy right now? Just think about that. What are the voices you're hearing in your head? What are the, what are the issues and the, and the things that are, that are loud when you wake up in the morning or when you go to bed at night? What ladders of pride are, are being erected in your life and you're trying to climb at the expense of others? What is occupying you and driving your life that is really ultimately out of your reach, beyond your control? There's nothing you can do about it. It'll only leave you frustrated, fearful, and empty. Where do you need to say to your soul, shh, be still? Take that and bring it to Jesus, who is gentle and lowly. (laughs) Learn from him what it means to be still, to have composure, to rest in holy contentment. He's taken your burden, whatever it is. He's walked the road of weariness. He has received all the judgment He is the way, the truth, and the life that brings us into the Father's lap and into his loving arms. The key to a calm and quieted soul is a soul that puts its hope in him. Peace, be still. Know that I am God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we need this word in our own hearts, in our churches, in our world. 
Father, how we long to learn this lesson and we know it. We say it. We have such a hard time learning it. Father, would you take every clamoring noise, every whispering anxiety, worry, every loud voice that is trying to drown out the other loud voices. And Father, through your Son, Jesus, and through our listening and learning and loving and living in him, help us to calm and quiet our souls. Give us contentment. Put our hope, Lord, in the only place where it is certain, and that is in you. And Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, don't know what it is to rest or have never even felt a rest from their own restlessness, Lord, would you open their eyes to see, give them ears to hear your call. Come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.